Chapter 18, Part 1 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1 by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Voice Guy. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova, Episode 4, Return to Venice. Chapter 18, Part 1. Fortune, which had taken pleasure in giving me a specimen of its despotic caprice, and had ensured my happiness through means which sages would disavow, had not the power to make me adopt a system of moderation and prudence which alone could establish my future welfare on a firm basis. At the house of Madame Avogadro, a woman full of wit in spite of her sixty years, I made the acquaintance of a young Polish nobleman called Zawoyski. He was expecting money from Poland, but in the meantime the Venetian ladies did not let him want for any, being all very much in love with his handsome face and his Polish manners. We soon became good friends. My purse was his, but twenty years later he assisted me to a far greater extent in Munich. Zawoyski was honest. He had only a small dose of intelligence, but it was enough for his happiness. He died in Trieste five or six years ago, the ambassador of the Elector of Treves. I will speak of him in another part of these memoirs. This amiable young man, who was a favorite with everybody, and was thought a free thinker because he frequented the society of Angelo Carini and Leonardo Venier, presented me one day, as we were out walking, to an unknown countess who took my fancy very strongly. We called on her in the evening and after introducing me to her husband, Count Rinaldi, she invited us to remain and have supper. The Count made a faro-bank in the course of the evening. I punted with his wife as a partner, and won some fifty ducats. Very much pleased with my new acquaintance, I called alone on the Countess the next morning. The Count, apologizing for his wife, who was not up yet, took me to her room. She received me with graceful ease, and her husband having left us alone, she had the art to let me hope for every favor, yet without committing herself. When I took leave of her, she invited me to supper for the evening. After supper I played, still in partnership with her, won again, and went away very much in love. I did not fail to pay her another visit the next morning, but when I presented myself at the house, I was told that she had gone out. I called again in the evening and after she had excused herself for not having been at home in the morning, the faro-bank began, and I lost all my money, still having the countess for my partner. After supper, and when the other guests had retired, I remained with Savoyski, Count Rinaldi having offered to give us our revenge. As I had no more money, I played upon trust, and the count threw down the cards after I had lost five hundred sequins. I went away in great sorrow. I was bound in honor to pay the next morning, and I did not possess a groat. Love increased my despair, for I saw myself on the point of losing the esteem of a woman by whom I was smitten, and the anxiety I felt did not escape Monsieur de Bragadin when we met in the morning. He kindly encouraged me to confess my troubles to him. I was conscious that it was my only chance, and candidly related the whole affair, and I ended by saying that I should not survive my disgrace. He consoled me by promising that my debt would be cancelled in the course of the day if I would swear never to play again upon trust. I took an oath to that effect, and kissing his hand I went out for a walk, 
relieved from a great load. I had no doubt that my excellent father would give me five hundred sequins during the day, and I enjoyed my anticipation the honor I would derive, in the opinion of the lovely countess, by my exactitude and prompt discharge of my debt. I felt that it gave new strength to my hopes, and that feeling prevented me from regretting my heavy loss, but grateful for the great generosity of my benefactor, I was fully determined on keeping my promise. I dined with the three friends, and the matter was not even alluded to. But, as we were rising from the table, a servant brought Monsieur de Braganin a letter and a parcel. He read the letter, asked me to follow him into his study, and the moment we were alone, he said, Here is a parcel for you. I opened it, and found some forty sequins. Seeing my surprise, Monsieur de Braganin laughed merrily and handed me the letter, the contents of which ran thus. Monsieur de Casanova may be sure that our playing last night was only a joke. He owes me nothing. My wife begs to send him half of the gold which he has lost in cash. Count Rinaldi. I looked at Monsieur de Braganin, perfectly amazed, and he burst out laughing. I guessed the truth, thanked him, and embracing him tenderly, I promised to be wiser for the future. The mist I had before my eyes was dispelled. I felt that my love was defunct and I remained rather ashamed when I realized that I had been the dupe of the wife as well as of the husband. This evening, said my clever physician, you can have a gay supper with the charming countess. This evening, my dear respected benefactor, I will have supper with you. You have given me a masterly lesson. The next time you lose money upon trust, you had better not pay it. But I should be dishonored. Never mind. The sooner you dishonor yourself, the more you will save, for you will always be compelled to accept your dishonor whenever you find yourself utterly unable to pay your losses. It is therefore more prudent not to wait until then. It is much better still to avoid that fatal impossibility by never playing otherwise than with money in hand. No doubt of it, for then you will save both your honor and your purse. But as you are fond of games of chance, I advise you never to punt. Make the bank and the advantage must be on your side. Yes, but only a slight advantage. As slight as you please, but it will be on your side, and when the game is over, you will find yourself a winner and not a loser. The punter is excited. The banker is calm. The last says, I bet you do not guess, while the first says, I bet I can guess. Which is the fool and which is the wise man? The question is easily answered. I adjure you to be prudent. But if you should punt and win, recollect that you are only an idiot if at the end you lose. Why an idiot? Fortune is very fickle. It must be necessarily so. It is a natural consequence. Leave off playing, believe me, the very moment you see luck turning, even if you should, at that moment, win but one groat. I'd read Plato, and I was astonished at finding a man who could reason like Socrates. The next day... Zawoyski called on me very early to tell me that I had been expected to supper, and that Count Rinaldi had praised my promptness in paying my debts of honor. I did not think it necessary to undeceive him, but I did not go again to Count Rinaldi's, whom I saw sixteen years afterwards in Milan. As to Zawoyski, I did not tell him the story till I met him in Carlsbad, old and deaf, forty years later. Three or four months later, Monsieur de Bragadin, taught me another of his masterly lessons. 
I had become acquainted, through Zawoyski, with a Frenchman called Labadie, who was then soliciting from the Venetian government the appointment of inspector of the armies of the Republic. The Senate appointed, and I presented him to my protector, who promised him his vote. But the circumstance I am going to relate prevented him from fulfilling his promise. I was in need of one hundred sequins to discharge a few debts, and I begged Monsieur de Bragadin to give them to me. Why, my dear son, do you not ask Monsieur de Labadie to render you that service? I should not dare to do so, dear father. Try him. I am certain that he will be glad to lend you that sum. I doubt it, but I will try. I called upon Labadie on the following day, and after a short exchange of compliments I told him the service I expected from his friendship. He excused himself in a very polite manner, drowning his refusal in that sea of commonplaces which people are sure to repeat when they cannot or will not oblige a friend. Zawoyski came in as he was still apologizing, and I left them together. I hurried at once to Monsieur de Bragadin, and told him my want of success. He merely remarked that the Frenchman was deficient in intelligence. It just happened that it was the very day on which the appointment of the inspectorship was to be brought before the Senate. I went out to attend to my business, I ought to say, to my pleasure, and as I did not return home till after midnight, I went to bed without seeing my father. In the morning I said in his presence that I intended to call upon Labadie to congratulate him upon his appointment. You may spare yourself that trouble. The Senate has rejected his nomination. How so? Three days ago Labadie felt sure of his success. He was right then, for he would have been appointed if I had not made up my mind to speak against him. I have proved to the Senate that a right policy forbade the government to trust such an important post to a foreigner. I am much surprised, for Your Excellency was not of that opinion the day before yesterday. Very true, but then I did not know Monsieur de Labadie. I found out only yesterday that the man was not sufficiently intelligent to fill the position he was soliciting. Is he likely to possess a sane judgment when he refuses to lend you one hundred sequins? That refusal has cost him an important appointment and an income of three thousand crowns, which would now be his. When I was taking my walk on the same day, I met Zawoyski with Labadie and did not try to avoid them. Labadie was furious and he had some reason to be so. If you had told me, he said angrily, that the one hundred sequins were intended as a gag to stop Monsieur de Bragadin's mouth, I would have contrived to procure them for you. If you had an inspector's brains, you would have easily guessed it. The Frenchman's resentment proved very useful to me, because he related the circumstance to everybody. The result was that from that time those who wanted the patronage of the senator applied to me. Comment is needless. This sort of thing has long been in existence, and will long remain so, because very often, to obtain the highest of favors, all that is necessary is to obtain the good will of a minister's favorite, or even of his valet. It was about that time that my brother Jean came to Venice with Gaurienti, a converted Jew, a great judge of paintings, who was traveling at the expense of His Majesty the King of Poland and the Elector of Saxony. It was the converted Jew who had purchased for His Majesty the gallery of the Duke of Modena for one hundred thousand sequins. Guarienti and my brother left Venice for Rome, where Jean remained in the studio of the celebrated painter Raphael Mengs, whom we shall meet again hereafter. 
Now, as a faithful historian, I must give my readers the story of a certain adventure in which were involved the honor and happiness of one of the most charming women in Italy, who would have been unhappy if I had not been a thoughtless fellow. In the early part of October 1746, the theaters being opened, I was walking about with my mask on when I perceived a woman whose head was well enveloped in the hood of her mantle getting out of the Ferrara barge which had just arrived. Seeing her alone, and observing her uncertain walk, I felt myself drawn towards her as if an unseen hand had guided me. I came up to her and offered my services if I can be of any use to her. She answers timidly that she only wants to make some inquiries. We're not here in the right place for conversation, I say to her, but if you would be kind enough to come with me to a café, you would be able to speak and explain your wishes. She hesitates, I insist, and she gives way. The tavern was close at hand. We go in, and we are alone in a private room. I take off my mask, and out of politeness she must put down the hood of her mantle. A large muslin headdress conceals half of her face, but her eyes, her nose, and her pretty mouth are enough to let me see on her features beauty, nobleness, sorrow, and that candor which gives youth such an undefinable charm. I need not say that, with such a good letter of introduction, the unknown at once captivated my warmest interest. After wiping away a few tears which are flowing, in spite of all her efforts, she tells me that she belongs to a noble family, and that she has run away from her father's house, alone, trusting in God, to meet a Venetian nobleman who had seduced her and then deceived her, thus sealing her everlasting misery. You have then some hope of recalling him to the path of duty? I suppose he has promised you marriage? He has engaged his faith to me in writing. The only favor I claim from your kindness is to take me to his house, to leave me there, and to keep my secret. You may trust, madam, to the feelings of a man of honor. I am worthy of your trust. Have entire confidence in me, for I already take a deep interest in all your concerns. Tell me his name. Alas, sir, I give way to fate. With these words, she takes out of her bosom a paper which she gives me. I recognize the handwriting of Zanetto Stefani. It was a promise of marriage by which he engaged his word of honor to marry within a week in Venice the young Countess A.S. When I have read the paper, I return it to her, saying that I knew the writer quite well, that he was connected with the Chancellor's office, known as a great libertine, and deeply in debt, but that he would be rich after his mother's death. For God's sake, take me to his house. I will do anything you wish, but have entire confidence in me, and be good enough to hear me. I advise you not to go to his house. He's already done you great injury, and even supposing that you should happen to find him at home, he might be capable of receiving you badly. If he should not be at home, it is most likely that his mother would not exactly welcome you, if you should tell her who you are and what is your errand. Trust to me, and be quite certain that God has sent me on your way to assist you. I promise you that tomorrow at the latest you shall know whether Stefani is in Venice, what he intends to do with you, and what we may compel him to do. Until then, my advice is not to let him know your arrival in Venice. Good God! Where shall I go tonight? To a respectable house, of course. I will go to yours if you are married. I am a bachelor. I knew an honest widow who resided in a lane, and who had two furnished rooms. I persuade the young countess to follow me, and we take a gondola. 
As we are gliding along, she tells me that one month before Stefani had stopped in her neighborhood for necessary repairs to his traveling carriage, and that on the same day he made her acquaintance at a house where she had gone with her mother for the purpose of offering their congratulations to a newly married lady. I was unfortunate enough, she continued, to inspire him with love, and he postponed his departure. He remained one month in sea, never going out but in the evening, and spending every night under my windows conversing with me. He swore a thousand times that he adored me, that his intentions were honorable. I entreated him to present himself to my parents to ask me in marriage, but he always excused himself by alleging some reason, good or bad, assuring me that he could not be happy unless I showed him entire confidence. He would beg of me to make up my mind to run away with him, unknown to everybody, promising that my honor should not suffer from such a step because, three days after my departure, everybody should receive notice of my being his wife, and he assured me that he would bring me back on a visit to my native place shortly after our marriage. Alas, sir, what shall I say now? Love blinded me. I fell into the abyss. I believed him. I agreed to everything. He gave me the paper which you have read, and the following night, I allowed him to come into my room through the window under which he was in the habit of conversing with me. I consented to be guilty of a crime which I believed would be atoned for within three days, and he left me, promising that the next night he would be again under my window, ready to receive me in his arms. Could I possibly entertain any doubt after the fearful crime I had committed for him? I prepared a small parcel, and waited for his coming, but in vain. Oh, what a cruel long night it was! In the morning I heard that the monster had gone away with his servant one hour after sealing my shame. You may imagine my despair. I adopted the only plan that despair could suggest, and that, of course, was not the right one. One hour before midnight I left my father's roof alone, thus completing my dishonor, but resolved on death if the man who has cruelly robbed me of my most precious treasure, and whom a natural instinct told me I could find here, does not restore me the honor which he alone can give me back. I walked all night and nearly the whole day without taking any food until I got into the barge, which brought me here in twenty-four hours. I traveled in the boat with five men and two women, but no one saw my face or heard my voice. I kept constantly sitting down in a corner, holding my head down, half asleep, and with this prayer book in my hands. I was left alone. No one spoke to me, and I thanked God for it. When I landed on the wharf, you did not give me time to think how I could find out the dwelling of my perfidious seducer, but you may imagine the impression produced upon me by the sudden apparition of a masked man who, abruptly and as if placed there purposely by providence, offered me his services. It seemed to me that you had guessed my distress, and far from experiencing any repugnance, I felt that I was acting rightly in trusting myself in your hands, in spite of all prudence which, perhaps, ought to have made me turn a deaf ear to your words, and refuse the invitation to enter alone with you the house to which you took me. You know all now, sir, but I entreat you not to judge me too severely. I have been virtuous all through my life. One month ago I had never committed a fault which could call a blush upon my face, and the bitter tears which I shed every day will, I hope, wash out my crime in the eyes of God. I have been carefully brought up, but love and the want of experience have thrown me into the abyss. I am in your hands, and I feel certain that I shall have no cause to repent it. 
I needed all she had just told me to confirm me in the interest which I had felt in her from the first moment. I told her unsparingly that Stefani had seduced and abandoned her of malice aforethought, and that she ought to think of him only to be revenged of his perfidy. My words made her shudder, and she buried her beautiful face in her hands. We reached the widow's house. I established her in a pretty, comfortable room, and ordered some supper for her, desiring the good landlady to skew her every attention and let her want for nothing. I then took an affectionate leave of her, promising to see her early in the morning. On leaving this interesting but hapless girl, I proceeded to the house of Stefani. I heard from one of his mother's gondoliers that he had returned to Venice three days before, but that twenty-four hours after his return he had gone away again without any servant, and nobody knew his whereabouts, not even his mother. The same evening, happening to be seated next to an abbey from Bologna at the theatre, I asked him several questions respecting the family of my unfortunate protégé. The abbey being intimately acquainted with them, I gathered from him all the information I required, and amongst other things I heard that the young countess had a brother, then an officer in the papal service. Very early the next morning I called upon her. She was still asleep. The widow told me that she had made a pretty good supper, but without speaking a single word, and that she had locked herself up in her room immediately afterwards. As soon as she had opened her door, I entered her room, and cutting short her apologies for having kept me waiting, I informed her of all I had heard. Her features bore the stamp of deep sorrow, but she looked calmer, and her complexion was no longer pale. She thought it unlikely that Stefani would have left for any place but for sea. Admitting the possibility that she might be right, I immediately offered to go to sea myself, and to return without loss of time to fetch her in case Stefani should be there. Without giving her time to answer, I told her all the particulars I had learned concerning her honorable family, which caused her real satisfaction. I have no objection, she said, to your going to sea, and I thank you for the generosity of your offer, but I beg you will postpone your journey. I still hope that Stefani will return, and then I can take a decision. I think you are quite right, I said. Will you allow me to have some breakfast with you? Do you suppose I could refuse you? I should be very sorry to disturb you in any way. How did you use to amuse yourself at home? I'm very fond of books and music. My harpsichord was my delight. I left her after breakfast, and in the evening I came back with a basket full of good books and music, and I sent her an excellent harpsichord. My kindness confused her, but I surprised her much more when I took out of my pocket three pairs of slippers. She blushed and thanked me with great feeling. She had walked a long distance, her shoes were evidently worn out, her feet sore, and she appreciated the delicacy of my present. As I had no improper design with regard to her, I enjoyed her gratitude, and felt pleased at the idea she evidently entertained of my kind attentions. I had no other purpose in view but to restore calm to her mind, and to obliterate the bad opinion which the unworthy Stefani had given her of men in general. I never thought of inspiring her with love for me and I had not the slightest idea that I could fall in love with her. She was unhappy, and her unhappiness, a sacred thing in my eyes, called all the more for my honorable sympathy because, without knowing me, she had given me her entire confidence. Situated as she was, I could not suppose her heart susceptible of harboring a new affection, and I would have despised myself if I had tried to seduce her by any means in my power. I remained with her only a quarter of an hour, 
being unwilling that my presence should trouble her at such a moment, as she seemed to be at a loss how to thank me and express all her gratitude. I was thus engaged in a rather delicate adventure, the end of which I could not possibly foresee, but my warmth for my protégé did not cool down, and having no difficulty in procuring the means to keep her, I had no wish to see the last scene of the romance. That singular meeting, which gave me the useful opportunity of finding myself endowed with generous dispositions, stronger even than my love for pleasure, flattered my self-love more than I could express. I was then trying a great experiment, and conscious that I wanted sadly to study myself, I gave up all my energies to acquire the great science of the X. On the third day, in the midst of expressions of gratitude which I could not succeed in stopping, she told me that she could not conceive why I showed her so much sympathy, because I ought to have formed but a poor opinion of her in consequence of the readiness with which she had followed me into the café. She smiled when I answered that I could not understand how I had succeeded in giving her so great a confidence in my virtue when I appeared before her with a mask on my face, in a costume which did not indicate a very virtuous character. It was easy for me, madam, I continued, to guess that you were a beauty in distress, when I observed your youth, the nobleness of your countenance, and more than all, your candor. The stamp of truth was so well affixed to the first words you uttered that I could not have the shadow of a doubt left in me as to your being the unhappy victim of the most natural of all feelings, and as to your having abandoned your home through a sentiment of honor. Your fault was that of a warm heart, seduced by love, over which reason could have no sway, and your flight, the action of a soul crying for reparation or for revenge, fully justifies you. Your cowardly seducer must pay with his life the penalty due to his crime, and he ought never to receive by marrying you an unjust reward, for he is not worthy of possessing you after degrading himself by the vilest conduct. Everything you say is true. My brother, I hope, will avenge me. You are greatly mistaken if you imagine that Stefani will fight your brother. Stefani is a coward who will never expose himself to an honorable death. As I was speaking, she put her hand in her pocket and drew forth, after a few moments' consideration, a stiletto, six inches long, which she placed on the table. "'What is this?' I exclaimed. "'It is a weapon upon which I reckoned until now to use against myself in case I should not succeed in obtaining reparation for the crime I have committed. "'But you have opened my eyes. Take away, I entreat you, this stiletto, which henceforth is useless to me. I trust in your friendship.' and I have an inward certainty that I shall be indebted to you for my honor as well as for my life. I was struck by the words she had just uttered, and I felt that those words, as well as her looks, had found their way to my heart, besides enlisting my generous sympathy. I took the stiletto, and left her with so much agitation that I had to acknowledge the weakness of my heroism, which I was very near turning into ridicule. Yet I had the wonderful strength to perform, at least by halves, the character of a Cato until the seventh day. I must explain how a certain suspicion of the young lady arose in my mind. That doubt was heavy on my heart, for, if it had proved true, I should have been a dupe, and the idea was humiliating. She had told me that she was a musician. I had immediately sent her a harpsichord, and yet, although the instrument had been at her disposal for three days, she had not opened it once, for the widow had told me so. It seemed to me that the best way to thank me for my attentive kindness would have been to give me a specimen of her musical talent. Had she deceived me? If so, she would lose my esteem, 
but unwilling to form a hasty judgment, I kept on my guard, with a firm determination to make good use of the first opportunity that might present itself to clear up my doubts. I called upon her the next day after dinner, which was not my usual time, having resolved on creating the opportunity myself. I caught her seated before a toilet-glass, while the widow dressed the most beautiful auburn hair I had ever seen. I tendered my apologies for my sudden appearance at an unusual hour. She excused herself for not having completed her toilet, and the widow went on with her work. It was the first time I had seen the whole of her face, her neck, and half of her arms, which the graces themselves had molded. I remained in silent contemplation. I praised, quite by chance, the perfume of the pomatum, and the widow took the opportunity of telling her that she had spent in combs, powder, and pomatum the three livres she had received from her. I recollected that she had told me the first day that she had left sea with ten paoli. I blushed for very shame, for I ought to have thought of that. As soon as the widow had dressed her hair, she left the room to prepare some coffee for us. I took up a ring which had been laid by her on the toilet table, and I saw that it contained a portrait exactly like her. I was amused at the singular fancy she had of having her likeness taken in a man's costume, with black hair. "'You are mistaken,' she said. "'It is a portrait of my brother. He is two years older than I, and is an officer in the papal army.' I begged her permission to put the ring on her finger. She consented, and when I tried, out of mere gallantry to kiss her hand, she drew it back, blushing. I fear she might be offended, and I assured her of my respect. "'Ah, sir,' she answered, "'in the situation in which I am placed, I must think of defending myself against my own self much more than against you.' The compliment struck me as so fine and so complimentary to me that I thought it better not to take it up, but she could easily read in my eyes that she would never find me ungrateful for whatever feelings she might entertain in my favour. Yet I felt my love taking such proportions that I did not know how to keep it a mystery any longer. Soon after that, as she was again thanking me for the books I had given her, saying that I had guessed her taste exactly because she did not like novels, she added, I owe you an apology for not having sung to you yet, knowing that you are fond of music. These words made me breathe freely. Without waiting for any answer, she sat down before the instrument, and played several pieces with a facility, with a precision, with an expression of which no words can convey any idea. I was in ecstasy. I entreated her to sing. After some little ceremony, she took one of the music books I had given her, and she sang at sight in a manner which fairly ravished me. I begged that she would allow me to kiss her hand, and she did not say yes, but when I took it and pressed my lips on it, she did not oppose any resistance. I had the courage to smother my ardent desires, and the kiss I imprinted on her lovely hand was a mixture of tenderness, respect, and admiration. I took leave of her, smitten, full of love, and almost determined on declaring my passion. Reserve becomes silliness when we know that our affection is returned by the woman we love, but as yet I was not quite sure. End of chapter 18, part 1